So we're on our third and final talk for our parish mission on the Eucharist. And tonight we're going to say a few words about the cross and the Eucharist. Growing up in Raleigh, uh, I guess probably most of the South, especially North Carolina, we like basketball. And uh, I grew up in Raleigh, an NC State fan. And when I was in sixth grade, NC State in 1983 made that wonderful run, if you're a state fan anyway, all the way winning the ACC championship. Because if they hadn't won the ACC's championship, they wouldn't have gotten a berth into the NCAA championship. And then they had that miraculous run. I don't know uh, how many times something like that's happened because they were underdogs in pretty much every game. And I don't know when the phrase... March Madness actually uh, started, but that was certainly a, a, an episode of March Madness. But many people would probably say what we're doing, even though it's not March yet, in a few months, in a few weeks, we will have March Madness start, starting up again. They would tell us that we're mad, that we have, we're suffering from March Madness in the sense that who would believe, if we didn't know anything about the Catholic faith or the church, that somehow we profess that God is here on the altar in the form of bread, and that this God is so loving that he came to this earth to die for us. Is that not a type of madness, that we believe that God loves us so much? But that's what we believe. We believe that Jesus did all of this for us. And this madness, so to speak, reached its high point on the cross. Uh, But there is a connection between what he did on on Good Friday by dying on the cross and the sacrament of the Eucharist. And I hope to draw out some parallels, obviously nothing that I invented, but the deep mysteries of the cross and the Eucharist mixed together. The idea of the cross was, I probably, certainly in my vocation, in any vocation to any state of life, but maybe particularly the priesthood or the religious life, the cross is something very evident. Uh, I did study at uh, NC State. I studied chemical engineering, and at least back then, the big chemical engineering building was Riddick. And there was a special tunnel, or a tunnel that I remember. It wasn't a free expression tunnel. This is another tunnel, I think, for the couple tunnels down. And I just remember, for whatever reason, going to one of my chem classes, and I remember coming out of the, one, that tunnel, and there's, I don't know, a few flights of steps that lead up to the, the back of Riddick Engineering Building. And for whatever reason, I didn't physically see a cross, but in my mind's eye, the cross appeared to me. Uh, again, not physically, not I didn't see it. It was just kind of appeared to me in my mind as I was walking up the steps to class. And I just had a, a momentary experience of feeling the inadequacy, <clears throat> inadequacy of the, the things I was studying, that it really didn't compare, even though it was very interesting, and I probably could have made a career out of it, the things of the world, just at least for those few moments, walking up those steps, it was almost, I won't say meaningless, because that would undervalue, there's a lot of good stuff that happens, but it really couldn't compare to the cross. That seemed to have meaning, much deeper meaning for me. Now, of course, during that time, I was discerning the vocation to the priesthood, but for whatever reason, I do remember the cross and the effect of the cross and my own perception of the value of things. And how when you really meditate and reflect upon the cross, God really does put things in perspective. He gives you a good order of what's important and what's good, but not essential to your life. Uh, So 
I hope to say a few words to understand the cross better, help all of us understand the cross better, and see how this same love, what Jesus did on the cross, is made present in the Eucharist. I think it's important to understand that the essential act of the cross was not suffering because of punishment for our sins. Yes, that was maybe an element of it, but the essential act on the cross was an act of love. That's the primary. Everything else is secondary. Maybe like when Jesus says that a woman who's going in labor has those pains, but after she gives birth, the pain, she doesn't remember the pain anymore because of the joy of giving new life. That's probably the same thing what Jesus was experiencing. The pain was a secondary side effect. It's not as if the God the Father was saying, you are punished. No, no, no. This was a free act of love by God taking his sins upon him, our sins upon himself to free us. So the primary thing when we, when we and, and meditate and contemplate the gruesomeness of the, of the crucifix, pain shouldn't be the primary thing we focus on. Punishment should not be the primary thing we focus on, but rather God's love. He did this out of love. And as a secondary consequence, uh, he suffered that, that, that wicked pain. In today's first reading at Mass, uh, we have that confirmation that God didn't really... Uh, it's not a punishment so much. He says, Do I indeed derive any pleasure from the death of the wicked? Do I not rather rejoice when he turns away from his evil way that he may live? Again, does, does God saying, Do I derive any pleasure from the death of the wicked? Of course, God doesn't derive any pleasure for pain, from pain. He doesn't want it to happen. It was never part of the plan. So again, the cross was primarily an act of love rather than an act of, of, of punishment. So since the Eucharist is the sacrament of the Lord's passion, that must mean that everything that happened on the cross, everything that happened on the cross, what he he might have been remembering, the words he spoke from the cross, and the actual physical act of self-giving, they're intimately bound up with the Eucharist. So whenever we receive Holy Communion, all these things can find echo in our hearts and are inviting us to live all of this with Christ. And his, what he was maybe be thinking, uh, what he said, and of course, his, the actual act of giving his life. That's why adoration is so important, because it literally can extend our reception of Holy Communion. When we come to Mass, of course, we receive him, but the, well, as long as the accidents are there, then he's still with us. But those accidents uh, go away, and at that moment, the substance, the actual body and blood of Christ isn't there, but certainly we have a spiritual communion with him, and in adoration, we extend the spiritual communion of receiving the Eucharist. I think there's a parallel in the book of Exodus with us adoring, with looking at the Lord and adoring him. This is from Exodus chapter 16, verse 32, says the following, Moses said, this has to do with the manna, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Keep an omer full of manna for your descendants, that they may see what food I gave you to eat in the desert. That they may see what food I gave you to eat in the desert. We're, we're literally looking at Christ uh, in the flesh, well, in uh, body, blood, and soul, and divinity for sure, here on the altar was prefigured in the book of Exodus. So this relationship between what Jesus did on the cross And the Eucharist was probably most succinctly expressed by St. Paul in his first letter to, to the Corinthians. He said, For our paschal lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. 
Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. I don't think there's a more concise way you could possibly unite the two things of the Eucharist and the cross. For our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. And we all know know that the feast of the Passover for the Jewish people was never complete until what? Until they actually partook. They had to eat of the lamb too. Not just the sacrifice, they had to eat of it. So Jesus, giving us this sacrament of his body and blood, uh, we have to remember that it's a reflection of the cross and his outstretched arms are a sign of his embrace of all the human family, an embrace that reaches out to the most wayward sheep. The embrace is unlimited in time and space. This complete openness is why Christ can be and actually is really present in all the tabernacles in the world as we speak. Space and time do not limit Christ's power to be present. So isn't that exactly what the cross is? The cross is Jesus extending himself to the limits of dying, of shedding his blood. And that really takes place in the Eucharist, that he's, he's extending himself throughout space and time everywhere the Eucharist is present. So being present in the Eucharist is an extension of Christ's openness on the cross. I want to focus on three different, I guess we could say, category of things. First of all, Jesus' memory on the cross, his words on the cross, and then a few words about his total self-giving on the cross. First of all, his memory. Now, it might seem presumptuous that we can say that we knew maybe it was in Jesus' memory at that moment. But there's an interesting phrase that goes along with our faith. It's called, it's lex orandi, lex credendi. That means that the way we pray, the law of what we pray is the law of what we believe. So whenever we're praying something in the liturgy, the content, content of that prayer actually tells us the content of our faith. So... I think one great example of, of this lex orandi, lex credendi, we pray something and therefore what we pray we believe, is the reproaches of Good Friday, the Good Friday liturgy, the reproaches. Because what it does, and I'll read them, I'll read a few of them, is it shows that in the mind of the church there's a unity, unity between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, God the Son wasn't explicitly mentioned. It was only God the One God, God the Father. But with the reproaches, with this Good Friday liturgy of the reproaches, you'll see that there is an innate connection between God the Father of the Old Testament and what Jesus is saying about his own passion. So the Father, the Son are united, and the Holy Spirit is speaking in our consciences by the the question that we ask during the reproaches. So I think we could suppose that Christ was remembering the different works of his plan of salvation that are mentioned in in the reproaches. Some of them are the following. God says, I led you out of Egypt from slavery to freedom. For 40 years, I led you safely through the desert. I fed you with manna from heaven and brought you to a land of plenty. I planted you as my fairest vine, but you yielded only bitterness. When was I thirsty? When I was thirsty, you gave me vinegar to drink. My people, what have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. For your sake, I scourged your captors and their firstborn sons, but you brought your scourges down on me. 
I opened the sea before you, but you opened my side with a spear. I led you on your way in a pillar of cloud, but you led me to Pilate's court. I gave you saving water from the rock, but you gave me vinegar to drink. For you I struck down the kings of Canaan, but you struck my head with a reed. I gave you a royal scepter, but you gave me a crown of thorns. I raised you to the height of majesty, but you have raised me high on a cross. So again, we see that that great continuity that the church has given us in these reproaches is God the Father and Jesus, or at least the Son, was present in the Old Testament and the the Holy Spirit there is to uh, really awaken our conscience. What have I done to you? How have I offended you? Answer me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there in in this liturgy of Good Friday, which we will contemplate, of course, in a few weeks. So those are a few things about his, his, what Jesus could have been thinking and remembering on the cross. All the magnificent things he did with the Father and the Holy Spirit in salvation history. And then how do we react? We probably, like many times, whenever we sin, we're reacting like the chosen people did. They made their own little gods and, and went wayward. They went astray. But of course, God doesn't punish. He always works to bring us back. We're the ones who really punish ourselves through the effects of our sin. So Jesus' words. Uh, Jesus' life and mission were the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And if you'd like to, in your own prayer time, there are two essential texts from the Old Testament that the church has always used. The infant church, after these events happened, the church had to then go back to the Old Testament and see they understood, now I understand after what happened first, then they had to look back, and that's when the scriptures actually started making sense. So it's not as if the church invented something and then put it out there for belief and then said, you have to believe this. It's the exact opposite. The things happened first, which were unimaginable. They couldn't, they couldn't even comprehend what happened. What just happened, our leader who was performing miracles, they just crucified him. And then, but he was the savior, and he did all these miracles. How how is it possible? So the church had to reconcile the the things they they saw. They, he died on the cross. He rose on the third day. He but there's only one God. How can he be? All these different questions that were going through the minds. It took centuries to really get to the depth that there's one Trinity: Holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At least to be defined, it took centuries. But the important thing is that the events happened first. And then after the events, we were able to understand better. So the two essential texts are Psalm 22 and then Isaiah chapter 53. Psalm 22 begins by the following, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So it was Jesus' words on the cross that they heard And then they looked back in the Psalms. And this was one of the Psalms. And the reason it comes up in the context of the Eucharist is that further along in Psalm 22, so this is one of the first lines, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Uh, It then goes on to say the following, For God did not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out. The poor will eat their fill. Those who seek the Lord will offer praise. 
Again, Psalm 22 starts with, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus cried on the cross as he's dying on the cross. And later in the same Psalm 22 says the following, For God did not turn away from me, but heard me when I cried out. And here's the Eucharistic connection. The poor will eat their fill. Those who seek the Lord will offer praise. So we are filled on the Eucharist. And what do we do during Mass? We offer the Eucharistic prayer of praise and thanksgiving. The true connection uh, that we've received as this gift. Again, this is something the church had to go turn about with the power, with the uh, Holy Spirit, of course, enlightening the first community. But this is where it all comes together. And they look back on the psalm and they said, Now I understand that Jesus' death on the cross and the Eucharist are connected. That's one of the first words we can contemplate. Uh, another is, Father, forgive them. And we can all make our own personal prayer to Jesus about the times of forgiveness. That That's one of the hardest things, I think, of the Christian life is forgiveness. It's a somehow, cannot, we can't forget. I think that's a very common misconception about true forgiveness. Is that people often come and ask, Father, well, I, I can't forget what happened to me. Well, if something tragic or something even that you just can't get off your mind... God doesn't expect your memory to be erased. That's not what God is asking of you. Because we can't. We can't erase a memory. We can't erase a past hurt, the feeling of it, or the memory of it. So what he's asking us to do is to treat that person as if it never happened, even if we don't feel like treating the person well. God's grace will give you to really treat the person well, whether or not you feel it. So that's what Jesus, he was not feeling, how could he feel anything but pain and sorrow when he said, Father, forgive them, as he was being crucified. Feeling-wise, human-wise, everything, his emotions, the sorrow, the, the physical pain, it, didn't, con, it wasn't conducive to uh, good feelings, but he said, Father, forgive them. So whenever you need help in forgiveness, one thing I suggest, look at the crucifix, or uh, just silently ponder for a few moments the crucifix and then ask Christ for the grace to whatever strength you need to forgive someone, look at the crucifix and say, Jesus, the same strength that you had as you were being, after they were driving nails to your hands and your feet, yet you could say, Father, forgive them. Give me that strength too. So that his words on the cross give us strength. Also, another word we can reflect upon is what he said to the good thief. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. I think a great spiritual lesson there is that Christ really only needs a little bit of our openness. And then once he has entrance into our minds and our hearts, then he can start doing the rest. But we just need a little bit of openness, a little bit of repentance. Sometimes, of course, if we have a large amount of repentance and we're totally sorry, God can fill our hearts right away. But usually we only need a little bit of forgiveness and Christ can get in there. I think the good thief teaches us that. That who knows what he lived like. It was a pretty bad life, though, if he got crucified, the good thief, for what he was doing. Um, and all he said is, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. A great lesson for us. Just give Jesus a little bit of room in our hearts and he will do the rest. Lastly, a few words about his total self-giving. And just like he gives us totally here in the Eucharist throughout time and space, it's a reflection of what he did on the cross. There's a very interesting book, many of you might have read it, by a theologian named Brant Petrie called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Uh, 
And one of the things that, as scholarship develops, it just confirms everything we read about in the gospel, especially talking about Jesus dying on the cross at the same hour that the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. I'll just read a longer quote from this book. Um, it says the following about the lambs being sacrificed, because as when the holy, when the chosen people actually got to the Holy Land in Jerusalem, then they had a chance to build the temple. And that's where all the, the sacrifices of the Passover were made in the physical temple there in Jerusalem. Um, and they would bring you know, hundreds of thousands of lambs every year for the Passover. And they had to have some specific way of, of, of sacrificing all these different lambs. So they had a system. And you had that, that many lambs to be sacrificed, there had to be some type of order to it. What Brant Petrie says in his book, he says... Fascinatingly, we have evidence that in the first century A.D., of course, when Jesus lived, in the first century A.D., the Passover lambs in the temple were not only sacrificed, they were, so to speak, crucified. As the Israeli scholar Joseph Tabori has shown, according to the Mishnah, at the time when the temple still stood, this is the temple in Jerusalem, after the sacrifice of the lamb, the Jews would drive thin, smooth staves of wood through the shoulders of the lamb in order to hang it and skin it. In addition to this first rod, they would also thrust a skewer of pomegranate wood through the Passover lamb from its mouth to its buttocks. As Tabri concludes, an examination of the rabbinic evidence seems to show that in Jerusalem, the Jewish Paschal Lamb was offered in a manner which resembled crucifixion. Isn't that fascinating? That's the way they were doing it. So Jesus, he was a Jewish male. They all went up to every single year to the Passover. So he knew what the Passover Lamb looked like when it was sacrificed. It was sacrificed in cruciform. So it's only, obviously he knew it was going to happen to him, but uh, it's amazing that Everything we have heard about Christ in the Bible really happened, dying on the cross, and it was simply the fulfillment of the way the lambs were, were crucified, were, were sacrificed. And then Petrie goes on to say in the book, This conclusion is supported by the writings of St. Justin Martyr, a Christian living in the mid-2nd century AD, around 150. In his dialogue with a Jewish rabbi named Trypho, St. Justin Martyr states, for the lamb, which is roasted, is roasted and dressed up in the form of a cross. For one spit is transfixed through, transfixed right through from the lower parts up to the head, and one across the back, to which are attached the legs of the lamb, a crucifixion. So Jesus truly is our paschal sacrifice. Fascinating indeed. But this self-giving was not over. And I'll end with this quote, uh, or a quote from St. John, and then a longer quote from St. John Chrysostom. St. John reports all of this in chapter 19 of his Gospel. Uh, when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one soldier thrust his lance into his side and immediately blood and water flowed out. So here's really the culmination of the mystery of the cross, Jesus being crucified, the Paschal Lamb, and the Eucharist. St. John Chrysostom says the following, Now the water was a symbol of baptism, 
and the blood of the Holy Eucharist. The soldier pierced the Lord's side. He breached the wall of the sacred temple, and I have found the treasure and made it my own. Beloved, do not pass over this mystery without thought. Since the symbols of baptism and the Eucharist flowed from his side, it was from his side that Christ fashioned the church, as he had fashioned Eve from the side of Adam. Do you understand, then, how Christ has united his bride to himself, and what food he gives all to eat? By one and the same food, we are both brought into being and nourished. As a woman nourishes her child with her own blood and milk, so so does Christ unceasingly nourish with his own blood those to whom he himself has given life. So we thank our Lord for this great sacrament of the Eucharist, thank him for his great love by dying on the cross, and we worship him and we ask him for the grace to really convert our minds and our hearts this Lent.